Likely most of us in this room have at least heard of the name Jeff Bezos. And if you haven't, well, Bezos was just recently, according to Forbes magazine, listed as the wealthiest person in the world. He uh, knocked out uh, Microsoft Bill Gates as the leader. Last year, Bill Gates was the leader. Now, Jeff Be- Bezos is. Gates only has 90 or so billion dollars. How can a person live on that? Bezos has well over a hundred billion dollars. And if you don't know who Bezos is, Bezos founded a company a number of years ago called Amazon. And if I were to ask you to raise your hands if you've ever ordered anything off Amazon.com or if you are a member of Amazon Prime, probably many of you would raise a hand. If you think about it, Bezos' company has really revolutionized the way we do our shopping. The company was founded in 1995, and three years later, it had well over 2,100 employees. In its early days, it was basically uh, a way to buy books online, but now it does so much more. And the year that Bezos' company moved to 2,100 employees, he wrote a letter to the shareholders, and here's one of the things he said. He said, it would be impossible to produce results in an environment as dynamic as the internet without extraordinary people. Then he said, setting the bar high in our approach to hiring has been and will continue to be the most important element of Amazon.com's success. Did you hear that? He said the most important element in Amazon.com's success is the element of their hiring. Today, Amazon has over 500,000 employees all over the world. In those early days when when Bezos was assembling his team and he was very involved in in hiring people, he developed three questions that he would always ask before he would hire somebody. Now I realize in the room today we probably have some people who are working HR. Others of you might have small businesses. Others of you might be involved in hiring others to work in your company. Would you like to know what Jeff Bezos' three questions are? Would you like to know what he always asks before he hires somebody? Well, this morning we really don't have time to answer that question, so we'll move on. Um, no, I'm, I'm kidding. Here are the three questions Bezos always asks. First, will you admire this person? Now, this, this question gets at the heart of character. They want to hire high-character people, but more than that, they, they want to hire someone that they would be interested in working for. Isn't that a great way to look at it? Would you be interested in working for this person you're about ready to hire? And the second question is this. Will this person raise the average level of effectiveness for the team they're joining? And this points to the issue of, of competence. But even more than that, it points to the issue of innovation. Bezos said, you know, one of the things that people have to fight, companies have to fight continually, leaders in companies have to fight continually, is this idea of entropy, intercepting entropy. Because you see, companies just sort of left to themselves, systems left to themselves are constantly degrading. And so they, they need to think about how do, we, how do we innovate? How do we intercept entropy? He says he likes to he wants for his, uh, his employees to imagine, you know, uh, the bar constantly being raised. And so people who are working there now will go, wow, you know, I'm, I'm glad I, I was hired five years ago because the bar has just, you know, has just really been raised higher. 
But then the third question that Bezos always asks is, is this, along what dimensions might this person be a superstar? Here, they're looking for unique giftings and experiences among their potential hires. Bezos said, many people have unique skills, interests, and perspectives that enrich the work environment for all of us. Now, I would differ with that last statement that that Jeff Bezos makes just a little, particularly as we move from a work environment to a church environment. As we consider what we're trying to do at College Hills, I would differ with his statement in this way. I would change his word, many, to all. Because you see, in the church, every one of us has unique callings and skills and gifts. And that's what the Bible teaches us. You see, the amazing truth in Scripture is that when we come to faith in Christ, not only are our sins washed away and we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, but then that Holy Spirit will begin to equip us with unique gifts to be used in the life of the church for the benefit of the world. And so the key question that we're really needing to think about for just a few moments this morning is this. What gifts and abilities has God given me to serve others? And this brings us to Paul's words in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Now, as we read these verses, and as Will read them for us just a moment ago, we all know that these are, these are familiar verses. This is familiar territory. We've read Romans chapter 12 a lot. Paul begins this, this paragraph by using the word, therefore. And every time I see the word, therefore, in Scripture, I ask myself, A very cheesy question, but it's a good question. I ask myself, what is that word there for? I mean, why is it there? What's happened previously? Because when you read the word therefore, you know that the biblical writer is referencing all that's happened. Therefore, Paul says, in light of the first 11 chapters of Romans, in light of the fact that, that we've received the gospel, in light of the fact that we've been reconciled to God, in light of the fact that we've received the Holy Spirit, in light of the fact that God now is working everything out for our good and His glory, in light of the fact that there's now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ, in light of all of that and more, what are we to do? Therefore, Paul says, in view of all that we've read, in view of God's mercies, here's what I want you to do. Paul says, I urge you. Now, Paul doesn't command us. He could. He's an apostle. But Paul urges us. He says, I urge you to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Now, that last statement is really amazing when you think about it. It's, I believe, intentionally paradoxical. Now, when he uses the word sacrifice, those first century hearers, and and I think us as well, our minds would go back to that old sacrificial system. We would think about the animals that would be sacrificed on altars in temples. And more specifically, we would think about that altar in Jerusalem where the temple was and how an animal would would be killed and then would be sacrificed. There were dead sacrifices. 
And so as I think about that, in contrast to Paul's language, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, that begs the question, doesn't it? And the question is, what is it that we put to death? And here's the answer. And what I'm about ready to say is extremely countercultural. What do we put to death? We put to death the right to live as we choose. Or here's how we often phrase it. We die to ourselves in order to live for God. But we all know the trouble with a living sacrifice, friends, is that it keeps crawling off the altar. And yet if we're going to be living sacrifices, we must continually offer ourselves to God. And Paul's word is very important. We continually offer our bodies to God. What is Paul meaning? Paul means we offer every part of ourselves to God. Every morning when we get up, we say, God, I'm, I'm giving my life to you today. My hands go to you. My mind goes to you. My feet goes to you. My heart goes to you. Every part of you. Paul says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercies, off your bodies as living sacrifices and then he says when you do this understand this this is worship this is how we worship him by first of all devoting our life to him oh worship is important and and you know i have a passion for worship and i love to think about assembly issues and curry this is something that i think is very important i think we both do but understand what's even more important than what happens on sunday morning is what happens on monday and how we live our lives Monday through Saturday. And how we live our lives Monday through Saturday should prepare us for this moment when we come into this room and we offer everything to God in, in worship. And we can only do this if our minds are renewed. And so he goes on to say in the next verse, don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but you be transformed. How, how do we experience this transform? this transformation by the renewing he says the renewing of our minds inner transformation occurs as our minds are renewed by jesus now this is the point of verses one and two but paul quickly moves in verses three through eight to the idea of community and it's it's like paul wants us to understand that transformation can only take place within the context of community and it's in the context of community that we come to understand and both exercise our gifts. And I would say if we really want to be transformed, it comes as our minds are renewed. And it comes within community as we begin to exercise those gifts that God has given each one of us. And as we exercise those gifts in service, it's then that we begin to grow and thrive. Now, the dominant image in verses 3 through 8, as we talk about the idea of gifts, the dominant image is that of, of a body. Our transformation doesn't, doesn't occur alone. Certainly, we need personal alone time with God. We, we need to be in His Word, and we need that private time. But understand, as we spend our alone time with God, it should drive us more deeply into the heart of the church or, or, or of the community. And so notice what Paul says in verse 4. He says, for just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not have the same function, so in Christ, though we are many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Now we know the church is not a building, and the church is not an event. No, the church is a body. 
And, and like our physical body, each part is needed and each part is connected. In order for my physical body to function as God intends, each part is vitally important. And so I need my lungs. And I need my heart. And I need hands. And I need feet. I even need the big toe. I mean, I need my mind. I need the head. I need every part of this body in order to function. But the other thing that Paul helps us to understand in this, this context of, of of church as as body each part is connected now our natural tendency quite honestly is to be selfish as we develop an unhealthy uh, individualism we're a part of a of a culture that's really focused on the individual focused on the self and yet brothers and sisters as our minds are renewed and as we come to understand we're part of a community we're part of a body we'll understand that it's not that we need to be connected. We will understand we are connected to one another. And so let me use a very crass and maybe silly analogy to help us understand how we're connected. Imagine if I showed up to church one day and my arm is missing. And somebody says, hey, where, uh, where, where's, where's your arm? I said, arm? I, well, I didn't even, I didn't even know it was, was gone. I mean, it was there this morning, it's not now. I mean, that, that's silly, isn't it? Because you know, the arm is an important part of my, of my body. And when this arm gets disconnected from the body, oh, that would, that would hurt. Because this is a member of the body. And if, if this arm was suddenly gone from the body, then, then I wouldn't be able to function in ways that I'm used to functioning. I, I need both hands and feet. I, I need all the parts of the body for the body to function optimally. We're connected and every part is needed. And so this raises the question, what's my part in the body? If every part is connected and every part is needed, then what am I here to do? In the New Testament, there are a number of, of passages that talk about gifts. Uh, it talks about um, spiritual gifts. And, and you find some passages like Ephesians chapter 4, where when Paul talks about the idea of gifts, he's talking more in terms of, of, of people who are gift, gifted. And so he talks about how we have apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. And why are these gifts given to the church? These, why are these gifted leaders given to the church? so that we might be equipped uh, and do work, the works of ministry, so that every part might be equipped. But in other places in Scripture, uh, notably in places like 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans chapter 12, you have these lists of gifts. And, and these lists, I don't believe, are meant to be exhaustive, meaning as we put together Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4 and 1 Peter 4, all these places with these gift lists, it's not like he's saying these are the only gifts there are. It's not exhaustive. It's more descriptive. It's like God is saying, here's what these gifts are like. And as we read these gifts, we come to understand, oh, oh I see, this is how God has uniquely blessed his body. And then as we use those gifts in service and in ministry, not only do we experience a measure of joy, but the body is built up and the body functions as God intends for the body to, be function, to function. And so Paul tells us in verse 6, we have different gifts. And notice he uses this fascinating word, according to the grace that he has given to each of us. And notice, we each 
have gifts. No person is left out. You can't come into this assembly and if you're in Christ, say, well, you know, I, I just, I really don't, I don't, have a, I don't have a spiritual gift. Now, you may not know what your spiritual gift is. You might not have defined that or maybe you haven't honed that or developed it. But I'm going to tell you, every person who comes to Christ, they're given a spiritual gift. Don't confuse a spiritual gift with a talent. A spiritual gift is a spiritual gift because it's a gift that God gives you after you come to Christ. Now, what God might do, he might redeem a talent that you have. He might take that, that natural ability you have and infuse that with power and purpose. But understand, a spiritual gift is something that God gives us by His Spirit when we come to Christ. And so Paul in, 1 Corinthians, rather in Romans chapter 12, beginning in 6, he, he begins listing some of these gifts. And so he says, you, you may have a gift like prophesying. Meaning, speaking, you have this gift of being able to speak a bold word that the Lord gives to you. Or maybe your gift is, is teaching, or serving, or encouraging, or leading, or showing mercy. And the list goes on and on. Our God is very creative as He blesses us with these various gifts. But here's often the struggle. The struggle is, we might think, well, I, I don't know what my gift is. I mean, if I were to ask you right now to take out a piece of paper and write down your top two or three gifts, could you do that? Now, to be fair, this might be new information for some of you. Uh, some of you may have been just sort of trucking along in church, not really thinking about this idea of spiritual gifts. Uh, and you might be thinking, well, I didn't realize that spiritual gifts were something for today's church. Uh, and yet I would, I would say they absolutely are. They're we could have a conversation about are there some gifts that were temporary and only uh, in place for the beginning of the life of the church? We could have that conversation, but, but I don't believe there's any doubt to the fact that spiritual gifts are still in existence. And so maybe you're struggling with saying, I don't really know what my spiritual gift is. How might we uncover and unwrap our spiritual gifts? Well, certainly there are books you could read that would help with that. Uh, there are online um, gift inventories that you could take that, that would be helpful. But I want to encourage you to do something a lot more simple in your pursuit of discovery of what that gift is. I believe most often we discover our gifts through serving. Serving is the point of it all anyway. It's not this idea that I've got this spiritual gift. Wow, isn't that great? That's not the idea at all. The idea is God blesses you with a gift. Why? So that you can use that gift to bless the body and to reach the world. And as all of us come to understand, are a little more self-aware, spiritually speaking, as we come to understand what that spiritual gift is, and then, man, we focus in that area, and we use that spiritual gift, amazingly, the church begins to grow, and the church becomes more and more healthy. And so I believe we discover those gifts through serving. And there's the other thing. As we serve, we're also then able to develop that spiritual gift. Somebody might say, well, hey, if I've got the gift of teaching, that means I don't really have to prepare, do I? I mean, I just naturally have this gift of, of teaching. The Holy Spirit has infused me with this gift of teaching, so I'll just teach. I don't have to prepare. I don't have to study. And I would say the Greek word for that is baloney. Of course not. Of course you have to prepare 
In order, you may have that spiritual gift, but that gift needs to be honed and developed. That gift needs to be matured. And as you begin serving, then not only will there, that lead to a moment where you go, oh, I, yeah, I, I think I do have this gift or that gift, but then, but then that gift begins to be more and more developed. And as you serve in the life of the church, listen very carefully, because as you listen to what others say to you, you'll come to understand maybe what your spiritual gift is. And so maybe you'll hear people say things like, you know, I've noticed that um, after, after the meal, uh, you're one of the first people uh, to go start clearing away things. It just appears to me that you have this proclivity to want to serve others. And so you might, God may have given you the gift of, of service. Or maybe somebody will say to you, you know, the thing I've noticed about you is, is you, people are coming to you constantly for wisdom and, and counsel. I mean, people want to know your perspective. People want to know your ideas about something, spiritual, spiritually speaking. More than likely, God has given you the gift of wisdom. Or maybe you've been around people, and they have the gift of evangelism. Now, we might not all have the gift of evangelism, but we all have, we're all called to be evangelistic. But there, there are some among us that they have this gift. I mean, when they're in conversation with someone far from God, it's like God just blesses them with the right scripture, the right way to communicate. They have the gift of evangelism. You, you begin serving. You find a way to use your giftedness in the church, and you'll begin to hear people say things to you, and more and more that gift, that calling, will be confirmed in your mind. I've noticed specific gifts among our elders just by watching our elders serve and while our elders have a number of 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 strong gifts they're all great leaders every one of them if you just watch long enough you'll see you'll see what their real giftings are and so for instance charles morgan he has this very strong shepherding gift and so charles is the one who's constantly writing names down he's going out of his way to meet people uh, he'll call me and, and say, I, you know, I'm just really concerned about our follow-up. Have you talked to so-and-so? Have we talked to such-and-such? Why, why is that? Why is Charles so interested in people? It's because he has a shepherding gift. Or I look at an elder like Frank Galbraith, and Frank's class is one of our largest classes on Sunday morning. And every time Frank uh, leads our, our elder minister devotional thought, it's always so, so well thought out, and it's always so cogent and, and right to the point. Well, why is that? Well, well Frank has a, has a teaching gift, clearly. He's got a lot of other gifts, but one of his strongest gifts is a teaching gift. And that gift is often affirmed, and if it isn't affirmed, it should be, because he has a great teaching gift. And you don't have to hang around Mike Cotton very long at all before you realize that Mike has an administrative gift. I mean, Mike's constantly taking notes. He's oftentimes asking us about processes. He's making sure there's follow-up. I mean, Mike is all about making lists, making sure we're, you know, there's a, a linear a, a process through everything we do. He wants to make sure everything, everything in a large, thriving church is handled with a lot of great process. That's one of his favorite words. And so it's apparent that Mike has an administrative gift. Now, there are times when you may think you have a gift when, in fact, you pro- probably don't if you listen carefully to other people. I'll never forget when I was in college, and there was this classmate, and he wanted to preach, but can I just tell you he could not preach his way out of a paper bag? 
I mean, he thought he had the gift of preaching, and he wanted to give his heart to preaching. And, and he was just the sweetest guy, great heart. And we all knew he should change his major. We knew he, I mean, you know, there's nothing wrong with not wanting to preach. That's okay, especially if you don't have that gifting, especially if you can't string three words together in a coherent way. And so finally, one of our professors, our major professor in the preaching area, was going to have a conversation with him. In fact, he did. And he was just honest. He said, you know, so-and-so, I really think you should, you should change your major. It's okay. You know, you can always, we want you to be involved in the life of the church, but vocational ministry is probably not what you should do. And he said, no, I've got, the, I've got a calling to preach. I've got the gift to preach. I just, I just believe it. And the professor said, well, you might have the gift to preach. I just don't think any of us have the gift to listen to you. I just got, just got to be honest with you. And so if you listen carefully, you'll serve and you'll think, oh, my gift is teaching. And after a while you realize, oh, I don't really think it is. Or, or my gift is that. And, and you'll find, no, it's really not that. If you listen carefully to people, but you'll also find out what your gifting is. And as you're serving in that area, as you're, as you're teaching or as you're leading or as you're administering or as you're shepherding or as you're whatever that gift might be, as you are exercising mercy or as you're counseling, whatever gift that might be, it's amazing when you find yourself serving in that area, you feel a sense of joy and satisfaction and purpose. And God is glorified and the church grows and thrives. Because see, the purpose of a gift, it's not so that we can get some kind of you know, glory from it. It's so that we can serve others and bless others. Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, we read it earlier. He said, each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. And really, brothers and sisters, this is our challenge for today. Whatever gift you've been given, use it. And when you use your gift, friends, you're being a faithful steward of God's grace. Rick Warren said something that I, I read this week that I found extremely challenging. He said, my gift is preaching. God gave me this gift, not for my benefit, but for yours. If I don't use my gift, I cheat you. Think about that. God gave you a gift, not for your benefit, but for others. And if God gave you the gift of encouragement, and you're not encouraging other people, you're, you're cheating others. If God gave you the gift of teaching and you're not using it, you're cheating others. If, if God gave you the gift of counsel and yet you find you're, you're, just, you're just closed off and you're not engaged in the life of the church, exercising that great wisdom that God has given you, then Warren said, and I believe he's right, you're cheating others. But if on the other hand you use that gift, God is praised and the church begins to thrive. You know, the greatest gift of all is Jesus greatest gift we've ever received is Jesus. And here's the thing I know. If you receive this gift, and you must receive it to experience it, if you receive this gift, if you repent of your sins and are baptized in Jesus' name, here's what happens. Every sin is washed away. You receive a gift, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and that same Spirit will then equip you to be engaged in the life of the church so that we can make a difference in the world. And friends, there's nothing better than that. Today, the challenge 
is for us to not stand on the sidelines, but today the challenge is to step up and say, I want to serve. I might not know my gift, but that's okay. As I serve, I'll find it. And it's there that I'll gravitate to real service and blessing.